taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we step into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, and Ronan, Montana, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, and this is uh, yours truly, Brian Chilton, and we'll be uh, catching up with uh, Curtis Avalo here in just a few moments. Uh, This is part two. Uh, of our series, or our two-part uh, series uh, called "Is Genesis Historical," uh, and this features an interview that uh, Curtis and I recorded with uh, Dr. Todd Wood and uh, Paul Garner. And just to give you some information, if you, uh, of course, if you joined us last week, um, you already know uh, who Todd Wood and Paul uh, Garner are. Uh, but just in case you have it, we do encourage you to go back and uh, listen to uh, part one of our two-part series. Uh, but Dr. Charles, uh, excuse me, Todd Charles Wood uh, earned his Ph.D. in biochemistry from the University of Virginia. Uh, he is the founder and president of Core Academy of Science, which is a research and educational organization uh, devoted to nurturing the next generation of faithful Christ-like creation researchers to explore the hardest problems in creation. He's the author of uh, the book, The Quest, Exploring Creation's Hardest Problems, and maintains a popular blog called Todd's Blog, and he is the co-host of the podcast, Let's Talk Creation. Paul Garner, excuse me, Paul Garner uh, earned his uh, Master of Science uh, degree from uh, the uh, University College in London. He is a full-time researcher and lecturer for Biblical Creation Trust. Uh, he, uh, when he earned his Master of Science uh, in Geoscience from the University College in London, he specialized in paleobiology. He is a fellow of the Geological Society of London and a member of several other scientific societies. His first book, The New Creationism, Building Scientific Theories on a Biblical Foundation, and his new book, Fossils and the Flood, are available at bookstores everywhere. He is also the co-host of the podcast Let's Talk Creation. So let's get uh, let's dive into the uh, podcast already in progress, uh, and we're picking up with a question that I asked Dr. Wood concerning about how concerning how we can distinguish uh, human beings from other bipedal uh, hominids. So let's pick up on that question and uh, hear his. His fascinating response. Uh, in those well, things, re- re- real quick, real start, quick. Um, what what yeah. do, what do you do with other hominids? Do you see them as being uh, divine image bearers, or do you see them as being classified as as uh, animals of some sort? Well, I mean, what do you do with these other hominids? Excellent question. I, I wrote it so. So for everybody listening, I wrote an entire blog post on this. Uh, It's called A Letter to a Theologian on the Subject of Hominids. So if you want my detailed answer, go there. (laughs) Uh, If you want my five-minute brief uh, response, here we go. Um, the, The answer is that some of them appear to be unquestionably human. Some of them appear to be unquestionably animal. And some of them, I think there's just not enough yet to know for sure. Mm. Uh, And that's a weird cop-out answer because you'd think Uh it would be easy to tell, right? But sometimes the the data that you get is so fragmentary that you think, I I just can't tell. I just don't know, right? Mm. And the big problem is, you know, the, the image of God, the human soul, does not fossilize. That's true. Yeah, I cannot go to a skull or any other bone of the body and say, "Oh yeah, there's the image of God right there, that little blue dot. That's it, right there. I found it." <laughs> it's not that doesn't work that way, right? So you have to think of other ways of figuring out how that works. How do you find those things? And so one thing <clears throat> I would think would be the uh, the intellectual and cultural capabilities of humanity. If you can find that and you can find evidence of that, then that's 
probably you're probably looking at something human. Yeah. So, ex- for example, Neanderthals. So you've got Neanderthals. We have Neanderthals. We have evidence of Neanderthal uh, coordinated hunting, right? So they're bringing down prey. It would be like us going out and hunting uh, a rhinoceros, right, with sticks and and bows and and stone tools. I mean, this is not something that just one dude goes off and takes down. This mm-hmm. has to be a coordinated effort by a group of people who are capable of understanding what their role in the hunt is going to be and what everybody else is going to yeah. do. And they need to be able to know how to use the tools that they have made and that they have. Yeah. Uh, so that's a pretty sophisticated thing. Um, so they're hunting things, just they're not hunting rhinos. They're hunting things like horses. They're hunting things like uh, aurochs. So an aurochs would be a really, really think of a buffalo, but bigger. Um, and if you've been watching the news, you've seen uh, tourists being tossed around by buffalo in in uh, Yellowstone. Not, and just just a reminder to everyone: do not approach wild animals <laughs> to get a selfie. Just come on, not you're smart. smarter than that. If you do, you're gonna get tossed and maybe killed. Don't do that. All right, back to the Neanderthals. So, so we got all that coordinated hunting evidence. We've got evidence of Neanderthal using um, paint and dye to make colors and to decorate things. We have carvings that Neanderthals have made. We have, um, and we have, and this is a real interesting thing. We've got things like uh, eagle talons, the, the claws from an eagle. We've got shells. Uh, and they're there they have marks left on them that look like they were turned into little pendants so neanderthals are decorating themselves and they're decorating their surroundings uh and they have the controlled use of fire right so they're we have hearths from neanderthals they're cooking their food so so put all that together and i'm thinking yeah that's that's human. Oh, yeah. They may not look exactly like me. It may be that every, nearly every bone in the Neanderthal body is going to be noticeably different from mine. But they're also really similar to me. They're more similar to me than they are to anything else in the fossil record. And they have all of this cultural behavior. That, to me, becomes a real clear case of something that's pretty obviously human. And you've got mm-hmm. something like Something like Lucy, where you have a, a brain the size of a chimpanzee. She's she's uh, she's not really associated. I mean, there's lots of material from her species, Afarensis, not really associated with any sort of real sophisticated um, material that's unequivocally hers uh, from her species. So, and she doesn't really look at all like us. She looks way more like a chimpanzee than she looks like us. Uh, so. To me, that's a pretty easy slam dunk. That's not human. Uh, then you've got comparison. weird things. Yeah, so you got weird things like um, like Homo, something called Homo habilis. And Homo habilis is this, well, you know, which fossils are Homo habilis depends on which specialists you ask, right? So that's the first problem. We're not all agreed on what is Homo habilis to start with. Uh, and you've got very sparse evidence the 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 most complete skeleton we have is is one called oh62 and if you were to see a photograph of it it looks like a bag of driveway gravel so <laughs> trying to figure out you know what is this thing from a from from a skeleton that's basically been shattered into pieces is challenging uh, and trying to figure out which bones you know you find a random you find a random uh, toe bone in the fossil record well what does that go to if it's just all by itself um is that homo habilis is it homo erectus is it homo rudolfensis there's all sorts of things that you could you could fit it into and so yeah homo habilis is one of the and it's going to be contentious until we find some decent skeletons Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's not contentious in the sense of i'm going to take you out of this conference and fight you over it well, maybe I guess some people might be that bad, but but it's just going to be contentious in the sense of you know different experts are going to have different opinions on exactly what is what belongs to the Homo habilis and how we should treat it, um, and you know, so 
you know, I've had my own assessment of some of the fossils, and I think some of them are pretty clearly human. Um, but again, those are highly fragmentary, and it may be a big hodgepodge of who knows what. And so I'm totally willing to be quite wrong about that. Um, because it's the nature of science. You you have fragmentary evidence. You make what judgments you can make based on that. And then you try to lay out all your assumptions and, and you might be wrong. And it's likely that you will be actually. <laughs> yeah. And another important point I think that we ought to make about all of these um, hominid fossils that we're talking about is that, as, as we mentioned earlier, they're, they're, they're basically post-flood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they're actually not telling us anything about Adam what they're really telling us about, if anything, is about Noah and his descendants and recovery after, you know, the uh, the flood and um, probably dispersal after Babel. So huh. that's the kind of context you have to think about with with these fossils. Um, we don't have any fossils of of pre-flood humans. Um, I don't, in fact, Todd gave a very interesting um, talk at this year's Origins Conference where he was addressing this question specifically about Neanderthals. What is the geological context of the Neanderthals? And he looked at a number of, uh, I don't know, how many, how many sites did you look at, Todd? 100, 100 and something, 100 and change. It was, yeah, it was a lot. Yeah. Most of them, most of them are caves. Yeah. Um, almost all of them are caves, uh, and most of those caves are carved into rock that was formed during the flood. Mm -hmm. So the cave where the fossils are found is from the flood. So the fossils inside the cave, with all of their stone tools and all of their little cultural remnants, that had to be put in there after the flood. Um, so... Yeah, like you say, that this is a, a post-flood context. This is telling us about people coming out of Babel, coming off the Ark, and and finding this empty, ruined world and resettling it and, and figuring out how to live in it again. So. That is very a very interesting concept. I know one I had never... Well, one, one really quick question, and I know we're getting off topic, and I'll try to get steerous back That's on okay. here real quickly. <laughs> what, what do you do... What do you do with the dating of these fossils? Because you'll hear such and such fossil dated umpteen thousands of years ago. What, I mean, what, what do you do with that? Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a huge a, question. That's a huge question, yeah. yeah. So yeah. so part of my, my motivation there for that survey of Neanderthals uh, <clears throat> sites, um, I, I was, you know, just, there's, there's a couple of approaches to dating. So one approach to dating would be sort of the relative dating, right? Um, do we know that Neanderthals are older than the Homo sapiens inhabitants of Europe, right? Were the Neanderthals first in Europe and then Homo sapiens came after them? Um, and then in the creationist perspective, the relative dating would be okay. Is it pre-flood? Is it flood? Is it post-flood? Is it post-babel? Those sorts of things. And so you sort of have to reason through ways of thinking about where do I put them in this in this crude chronology? And then you have sort of what we would think of as absolute dating, which is sort of like radiometric dating where you are able to say this is, this mm. is, you know, 385,000 years old or this, this, the Schrodinger spheres are half a million years old or 350,000 years old or whatever they are. Kind of um, and so, yeah, what do you do with the dating? So on the one hand, what I do with the dating is what I just described and then just trying to figure out, okay, where does this fit into the chronology, the, the, the rough crude creationist chronology? Um, biblical absolute dating, that involves studying the genealogies, right? And so we look at the, the, the ages given to the patriarchs of 5 and 11, Genesis 5 and 11, and we try to figure out, all right, well, you know, how many years do we have in this period and how many years do we have in that period? And that involves... That involves a surprising amount of work because you end up having to go back to manuscripts that have slight differences in the ages. And so you get different numbers if you use different manuscripts. And so you got to figure out, well, which one is the best one and which one preserves most likely the original text. And, and that becomes quite complicated. And then you have, of course, the absolute dating for, for in the geology world, which I am wildly unqualified to even comment on. Um and so for me, I'm looking at, I'm looking to people like Andrew Snelling, uh, 
to help us understand radiometric dating and how it works and, and what it means. And then that then in turn, I'm going to take and try to figure out, all right, well, how does that fit into uh, what I know about these, these hominids? How can I apply that to that? Mm -hmm. uh, and again, I'm not an expert in that. So <clears throat> I can only speak as an entire amateur and outsider. Um, the one thing that I do know is uh, our f the, the best flood models that we have today do give us a pretty good idea of why carbon dating looks the way it does. Um, so that's really nice. Um, hmm. the, the, what we know about the, the Earth's magnetic field, what we know about radiation that, that produces carbon-14 in the upper atmosphere, which is where we get it, and it gets incorporated into plants, and then we eat it, and it gets incorporated to us. We know that carbon-14 was much, much lower prior to the flood, and it has increased gradually after the flood. Huh, so that if you don't take that into account, you're going to think that things are 50,000 years old, 40,000, 30,000 years old. That gets you back to the last of the Neanderthals, by the way. Um, and then... Uh, if you don't, so yeah, but if you take into account the changing levels of carbon 14, you realize, okay, well, these aren't really that old. These are actually quite a bit younger than that. Mm. Um, now, as I said, though, carbon 14 only gets you back to the, to the last of the Neanderthals. It doesn't get you down to the really interesting, yeah. weird stuff like Australopithecus and Homo erectus and all that stuff. That's all different sorts of dating altogether, which require a different approach to explaining and understanding. So, yeah. So, yeah, so that's how I answer. It's a very unsatisfactory answer. Everybody wants to know more. Everybody wants me to stop babbling about relative <laughs> dating and start telling me, oh, but this, but the scientist says it's 1.8 million years old. I know what the scientist says. We should all take a deep breath and, and yeah, <laughs> let, the, let the creation scientists keep working at it, and eventually the, the, the solution is going to come. But it always has in the past, so mm -hmm. I have no doubt that it's going to come in the future. Yeah, there's a, there's a huge job to be done to reevaluate uh, conventional dating methods within a creationist framework, mm -hmm. and that work has only really begun. You know, some some work has been done, and it points in some intriguing directions, uh, but we're only at the beginning of that process, and so there's a huge amount we don't know, a uh, huge amount of questions we still don't have good answers to, um, but. That's great job security for scientists, right? Yeah. <laughs> right yeah. Very good point. If only we could make a living at this. <laughs> hey, <that's> right. <laughs> yeah. Curtis, do you have anything to ask? I've been hogging Man. the conversation. <laughs> no, no, it's. I'm, I mean, we're we're an hour and. 15 minutes already into this and my mind's blown and they're just like, man, we could go forever talking about this. <laughs> let, let me jump over to the uh, whole uh, mytho history uh, historical tag. We'll probably, uh, and, unless you guys have something you want to add more to about the flood record, we'll probably skip that question. Uh, and, and let, again, unless you have something else you want to add there. But what do you think about the mytho historical tag that's often often associated with uh, Genesis one through eleven, uh, which again is another topic that has been has grown in popularity here in recent years. Mm. Yeah. So this this yeah. idea of mytho history is sort of come to the forefront recently um, because of a new book that, that came out called In Quest of the Historical Adam, um, written by um, a very well-known Christian apologist, uh, William Lane Craig, mm -hmm. who I'm sure you know many of your listeners will, will know about. Um, the, the actual sort of term, the, the idea of mytho-history doesn't originate with William Lane Craig, but, but what he has done is he's applied that kind of category of of literature to the early chapters of Genesis, to Genesis 1, 1 to 11. And just to try and summarize, you know, what, what he means by mytho-history, uh, as I understand it, you know, w William Lane Craig, when he looks at those early chapters of Genesis, he sees a historical core, right? He thinks there is a historical core mm -hmm. to, to those chapters. Uh, he points, for example, to the genealogies that, that this appears to be some kind of record of 
of history. And that's quite a step up, actually, from, you know, a lot of modern scholarship about Genesis, which just dismisses uh, historicity altogether. But uh, on the other hand, he also sees what he regards as um, characteristics of myth. He talks about these sort of family resemblances to other forms of ancient Near Eastern uh, myth. And he, he's using that term myth in the way that scholars of the ancient Near East or classical scholars, you know, or folklore researchers might, might mean myth. So he's, he's talking about a traditional sacred story that's embedded in a uh, a distant sort of dim primordial past um that perhaps includes some fantastical elements in it so he sees both these characteristics of history he sees other characteristics of of myth uh so he caught you know so he sees this as mytho history uh what what do i think about that well I'm not persuaded that William Lane Craig actually has a kind of coherent methodology here. <laughs> um, on the one hand, when you, when, you, when you read his book, um, one of the things he says is that we can't sort of tease apart the mythological elements and the historical elements, you know, as if you're kind of sorting out, you know, red and white colored balls. You know, you can't say, well, that bit's historical, that bit's... Mythological, he sees it rather as a kind of blend, um, you know, a bit like red and white paint kind of mixed together. It's, it's this sort of complete sort of blend of mythology and history. And yet, on the other hand, he does want to kind of pull out some elements <laughs> from Genesis 1 to 11 and say, well, yeah, that's, that's a historical core. So I get a bit confused about, you know, exactly what the, the methodology is here. And... He also, you know, when he points to these fantastical elements that he, he sees as resembling uh, mythology, he's talking about things like creation in six days. He's talking about the talking snake in the garden. He's talking about the cherubim with the flaming sword, you know, that guards the entrance to the garden after and the And that's fall. the one that probably shocked me the most, the fact that right. the, the cherubim, I mean, because you have the cherubim mentioned in other biblical texts. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, this, this, is, this is what puzzles me because I read that and I just read those as straightforward historical narrative. Um, I, he... he he, he wants to say, you know, I don't have an anti-supernaturalist bias. And for someone who's spent a great deal of his career defending the resurrection, you know, you've kind of got to take him at his word, I suppose. You know, he doesn't have an anti-supernaturalist bias. But you can't help feeling that the kind of the Enlightenment ha has an influence <laughs> here on how people are thinking about the text. You know, that certain elements of the text, you know, our, our kind of culture, the way that we're, you know, we're embedded in this post-enlightenment culture this rationalistic culture and it and it colors how we see the text so we see something like a talking snake but then but then we've got the you know balaam's ass right mm -hmm. elsewhere in scripture and um you know the cherubim well you know the cherubim are elsewhere in in the bible so the, yeah i i have a hard time kind of going with him and saying yeah those are fantastical elements that have really Yes, I mean, telling us that this is this is mythological. So, I don't know if Todd's got anything to yeah, add to I that. Yeah, I want to clarify for our listeners here exactly <laughs> when when <laughs> when you talk about the the, the methodology. Um, he does have these criteria that he goes through for myth. Yeah. There are ten of them. <clears throat> Most of them. The first one is the work is a narrative. Well, that is characteristic of lots of literature mm -hmm. could be myth could not be myth it doesn't, doesn't make it a myth right um so his criteria are of unequal value uh, in actually identifying mythology but ultimately yeah. yeah it does come down to his own personal incredulity at certain elements of what's going on in genesis 1 through 11 talking snake <laughs> Oh, that can't possibly be right. And so that that's it. That's that's it. Mm. And then 
when it comes to, you know, well, maybe it's true and maybe creationism is true. He gives, I remember he gives three, three things that he claims that creationists that, that are false of creations, that young age creationism is wrong for believing. And two of those things I don't believe. And I don't know any young age creationist that does believe it. So I don't know where he got his ideas about creationism being bad because it doesn't seem to be actually characteristic of any creationists that I know. Right. The third example that he gives is the most shocking of all was that Russ, Russell Humphreys, uh, a physicist, had proposed his own alternative model of the formation of the universe that would be consistent with a young universe and different from the Big Bang. And that's his objection. And I kept, and I'm reading that paragraph going, so what's the problem here? Of course, of course, creationists are going to propose alternative theories to explain the data. That's what scientists do. So you're faulting creationists for doing what we ought to be doing. And then he concludes that we live in a different world altogether because it's just, we just accept all this fantastical nonsense. It's, it's all very weird. It's just all very weird to me. So, uh, so on the one hand, you know, it's all just what, what Bill Craig decides is believable or not believable, which I don't know how we're going to operate when he's gone. Um, who's going to take over what is appropriate to believe and what is not appropriate to believe. Uh, and then his, his understanding of his, the alternative explanations seem to be completely vapid, completely <laughs> completely not not realistic so yeah i felt i didn't i didn't like that book <laughs> yeah I, I found it i found myself in paul's shoes because i found it very confusing at, at points because he he goes to great lengths to defend the term myth as explaining divine uh interactions with the divine but could be historically grounded but yet that he goes and uses that myth tag to describe the fantastic elements as you guys described. But one of the great ironies I find in all of this discussion is that uh, we have two scientists with us this morning who defend creationism, and we have a philosopher who defends evolution. It seems like <laughs> that's I find a great great irony in all of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do too. Believe me. I do too. Mm. <laughs> and it's worrisome to me, right? It's yeah. worrisome to me that there are more and more theologians that are just going along with what their scientist friends tell them is true. Yeah. And trying mm. to remodel everything to fit it. And I think, wait a minute. There's there are reasons to think that the science is not as settled as it's as being portrayed. Yeah, gentlemen, to be respectful of your time, let let me move forward. Uh, we I'm, I'm, we had a question about the fossil record and the flood. I, I think we've probably sufficiently covered that because we discussed about global elements of the flood. Uh, so we'll move on to the next uh, real quickly. What areas of the human body show evidence of design? Oh, this is definitely a question for Todd. He's oh, a biologist. <laughs> <laughs> I'll throw that one over to you, Todd. Well, I'm a biochemist too. Yeah. Um, my favorite is uh, the uh, excretory system. So, and I'm going to try to make this as pleasant to hear as possible. But, but here we go. <laughs> That's funny. Um, the world's full of all sorts of weird things, right? All sorts of weird weird stuff and um weird chemicals and sometimes we take those chemicals into our body and eat them or drink them uh and they get into our system um, now how do you design a system that will recognize bad stuff and get rid of it right so if you if you drink something bad and it's got some weird toxin in it how does the body know that's a toxin? Get rid of it. The answer is it doesn't. And this is where I think the cool design comes in. It, it doesn't know that. It doesn't know 
what is bad. Instead, what it will do, the liver has a whole suite of enzymes uh, that have various levels of specificity to them. And their function is to add little oxygen uh, molecules to whatever you've eaten that's weird, right? If it's not food, they're going to, those, those, those enzymes are going to go in and attach little hydroxyls, they're called. <laughs> and what that does is that it makes those weird chemicals water soluble. And once they're water soluble, now you have a system to manage it. And so what the kidneys then do, and this is, this is where I think it's brilliant. The kidneys, when, you, when your blood gets to the kidneys and it's being filtered, Basically, there's this, it's, there's like, how do I describe this? It's like a floodgate, right? So uh, the kidneys just suck every, all the water out. Well, not all the water, but a lot of water out, right? And with all that water comes a bunch of dissolved stuff, including whatever you've eaten that's probably not good for you. All that stuff that the liver had turned into water soluble stuff, right? That all gets sucked out by the kidneys and it's going to eventually become urine. But first, and this is the elegant design. First, the kidneys have this whole array of proteins that recognize valuable stuff <laughs> and it reabsorbs. So your body does not need to know this weird chemical that I just made in the lab is toxic. It doesn't need to know that at all. It only needs to know what's good and valuable, right? And so the kidneys first dump all that stuff. The blood comes along and dumps all the stuff that's dissolved in the water into the kidneys. And then the kidneys go through and go, okay, that's glucose, that's useful. This is that, that's useful. I'm gonna keep this, that's useful and so on and so forth. And whatever they don't reabsorb, and they'll take some water too, right? Uh, and whatever they don't reabsorb, that gets that goes out in the urine, right? And so it's gone. It's a brilliant, it's a brilliant system. Uh, and it solves, elegantly solves this problem of, well, you know, new chemicals can come about that are bad. And what, how are you going to, what are you going to do? And how are you going to get rid of them? No problem. There you go. It just you just pick out the stuff that's good, mm -hmm. and I think there's there's some spiritual lessons there as well, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the thinking of especially the fruit of the spirit, right? Uh, we are told to think on the things that are pure and lovely and good, and and that exhibit the fruit of the spirit. Yes, right, because mm -hmm. sin is always multiplying. There's always new ways to do very, very bad things. We should not be looking for those things and trying to guard against all the sin. We should be filling our mind with good so that when that sin pops up, we'll know, oh, no, 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 we can't. that's not good. That's not good. We'll know it, right? And that's, you know, that's, to me, that's right there in the kidneys. That's in the kidneys and the liver, <laughs> detoxifying all of our food and making sure that it's safe for us to eat. It's brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. And you you could extend that as well, because it's one of the ways that we recognize um, theological error, for example. Uh, if the more yeah. we know what the truth is, the more we study God's word and we know what's true, the more we notice the counterfeit and the and the erroneous. So, correct. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So on that note, we mentioned uh, hominids and uh, Homo sapiens. What what are some of the biological differences you find between Homo sapiens and other hominids? And I think you uh, you you mentioned hmm. you touched on this a little earlier um, about the cultural aspects. But what are some of the distinctions you find uh, between Homo sapiens and other uh, other bipedal hominids. 
<laughs> wow. Uh, I'm going to talk humans, not homo sapiens. How about okay, that, that sounds yeah. good. Um, uh, we'll start there. Um, some of the things that I found in my study of these things, uh, one is our brains. On average, our brains tend to be considerably larger than non-human animals. Um, another thing would be, as I said already, culture, evidence of culture, controlled use of fire, right? The ability to uh, create a, an elaborate stone tool. Um, and I would say, given what we know about the construction of most stone tools, they're probably all made by human beings. Um, people who have in their head, I want to do X. And so I need to figure out a way to crack this rock in order to generate this thing that I have in my head. Uh, and that goes back to some of the oldest stone tools we have. I used to think, because I didn't know any better, I used to think that the oldest stone tools might have been made by animals because they were very simple. But it turns out that a lot of them do exhibit significant planning. It's not that they're just rocks banged together, but they are being banged together in very specific ways, repetitively yeah. um, and intentionally. Gotcha. And so could, I've could, started to think maybe that's a little more than just monkeys banging rocks together. Can, yeah. I, can I tell you a story? I'll tell you a story there yeah. about a friend of mine who um, told me that some time ago he went on a, uh, a, a day-long course where they were going to teach people how to make stone tools. Nice. And uh, he said at the end of the course, you know, they were, they were given some rocks, they were given, given some flints, and they were told to go away and have a go at making a stone tool. And he said uh, he was chipping away, and after quite some time, you know, he was a bit disturbed that he didn't have anything that resembled a stone tool. It was just kind of a pile of flakes, <laughs> and it didn't really... <laughs> so he thought, I'm obviously doing something wrong here. What, what am I doing wrong? I wasn't listening properly. And so he went round, and he looked at what everybody else was doing, and they were exactly the same. They, were, they obviously just, <laughs> just had a pile of flakes. And he said, it, it, I began to realize that actually these stone tools, even these simple stone tools, are actually... Um, they're real works of art. They're, yeah. <laughs> they're they're not easy to make. You know, they yeah. they require some intelligence and forethought and planning and uh, and some skill and knowledge. Um, so and, yeah, they're not and, they're not simple tools. Yeah, and good teaching, right? And good teaching. Yeah. So it's not these people are you know just thinking oh, I could bang this rock <laughs> together and make a sharp edge and cut this this mm. this aurochs open that I just killed. You got to uh, be careful of that. Been, uh, chronological snobbery then huh yes exactly yeah. they've been making yeah that's a big issue they've been making these stone tools for for years and they've been watching other people make stone tools and they've been learning techniques and right and it's kind of a big deal and so when i find you know when i hear about stone tools in the fossil record i'm thinking those are probably human and what's weird and this is this is fun <laughs> so here's here's a fun little bit for you right so remember in genesis 11 right Noah's living to be 900 and plus years old, right? And Shem yeah. lives to be 600. And then you see everybody else living. If you yeah. actually add all that up, the first person to die dies after the Tower of Babel. Okay, keep that in mind now. So when you go into the fossil record, you find the earliest stone tools are really old really really old like more than a million years older than the first human fossil remains interesting now if you don't think the million of years millions of years <laughs> is, is true and you right, think that right. humans live for a really right. long time then i would expect to see a long cultural record before I start to see the first fossils. Very because true. They're not dead yet. Yeah. Mm. They can't make fossils from their bodies if they have not yet died. Right? <laughs> so it makes sense to me 
that I should expect to see a, 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 a record of culture before I start to see the bodies of the people who made it. Sure. Culture. And that's exactly what I find in the, in the, in the human record. Wow. So wow. Uh, it's pretty cool. Once you start, <laughs> once you start really digging into this and thinking about what this all means, you start realizing how that fits re really remarkably <laughs> yeah. well. Really and everybody nice. who tells you all yeah. the evidence is for evolution. There's no evidence for creation. Well, I think those people haven't really thought a lot about it because it's a lot more there than, than you might think. I'd have to agree. That's amazing. To, to, I, I'm yeah. going to actually combine number eight and number nine uh, together uh, because we're we're running we're running low on time. And um, so, two things. I, th I think I think we've already given the answer, but just want to ask this question: Why do you hold the position you do concerning the age of the universe? Uh, are there reasons for for believing uh, the universe is young? And Curtis added a wonderful question uh, that I, th I think uh, not only applies to young Earth, but also applies to creationism in general. How does a person navigate being in the minority of consensus when it comes to certain issues of creationism or creationism in general? So on the question about the age of the Earth... Um, Basically, my position is that the Bible teaches that the Earth is young. Now, there's yeah. nowhere that the Bible specifies the age of the Earth. You know, I can't, I can't go and point you to a verse that says, you know, here's, here's how old the Earth is. But I think the Bible does give us some information that allows us to essentially work out the answer to that question for ourselves. So, we're told that the world was made in six days. Uh, and I think there's some good textual evidence without going into lots of details that those six days were ordinary days, um, much the same length as the days that we now experience. Uh, we know that Adam was made on the sixth day of creation. We have uh, genealogies, the genealogy in Genesis 5 that takes us from Adam through to Noah, and then in Genesis 11 from Noah to Abraham. And those genealogies um, tell us how old each father was at the birth of the next in line. Mm -hmm. So uh, we can basically add up the numbers. And uh, it looks as if there are about 2,000 years between uh, Adam and Abraham, give, give or take. Uh, there are another 2,000 years roughly between Abraham and Christ and another 2,000 years from Christ to today. So comes out about 6,000 years. Now, there are some complications because some people want to say, well, you know, could there be missing generations? Could these maybe not be straightforward father-son relationships? Um, I, I, even, if, even if we allow for the possibility of missing generations, and I'm not sure the text does, but, but even if it does, I think there are some constraints on how much time you can put into the genealogies you know you've got you've got a couple of genealogies sure. there between adam and abraham I, th I think there are about 20 generations in in those uh, genealogies if you wanted to add even ten thousand years to um those genealogies you'd have to put in 300 missing generations <laughs> something of that order so oh, you know that just seems unreasonable so uh, so I, th I think there are some some constraints. And then the other issue was one that Todd sort of alluded to earlier, where he talked about the different texts of the Old Testament. So we, the numbers that I was referring to come from the Masoretic text, the, the, the traditional Hebrew text of the Old Testament. Uh, if you look at the Septuagint, which is the um, Greek translation of, of the Hebrew Old Testament, Greek, Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, that adds uh, that the numbers are a bit different. So you you add about fourteen hundred years or or something like that. But even so, you know, we're we're talking about a difference between six thousand years and maybe seven and a half thousand years, something on that order. So I I think it's I, I, for me, I think it's pretty clear the Bible teaches that the world is young. Um, I guess the corollary to that is: does it matter? Um, you know, is is that important? And I think a lot of Christians uh, say, no, it, it, 
it really doesn't matter when God created. It matters that God created, but it doesn't matter how or exactly when he, he did it. But I, I think it does matter, and just to try and explain why. Um, if the earth is old, and, and particularly if the fossils that we find in the rocks are very old, what that means is that death and agony and bloodshed, those are things that we see in the fossil record. Those things must have been in the world before Adam. Okay? Because the conventional dating of those things, the conventional dating of the rocks and the fossils that they contain, puts those things in ancient prehistory. And we would have to say that all of the death and agony and bloodshed that we see in the fossil record uh, must have been part of the world that God declared very good at, at, the, at the time he completed the creation. They could, we couldn't understand them as the consequences of sin because they, they predate Adam. And I think we have this problem, even if we think only about human physical death, even if we're not sort of thinking about the death of animals, because there are human fossils that, according to the conventional dates, go back much, much further in the fossil record than any reasonable biblical date for Adam. So I think we have this problem, you know, how, however we kind of cut it. And I think that's a huge theological problem with accepting that the earth is very old. Um, and I think it gives us a huge theological problem as we think about the meaning of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, which, you know, again, Todd has alluded to. Um, why did Christ have to physically suffer and die in order to pay for sin if physical death is causally unconnected to Adam's sin? <laughs> uh, that, that, you know, it just doesn't seem coherent to, to me. Um, the, the, the New Testament describes death as an enemy. It's an enemy that Christ defeated on, on the cross and in his resurrection. Um, are we saying that Christ defeated an enemy that he himself created in the beginning and called very good? Uh, that doesn't seem coherent to me, uh, <laughs> theologically. I, th I think we have these huge intractable theological problems so the only way i can make sense of that is to say no that the fossil what we see in the fossil record is a record of death and agony bloodshed that came after adam mm -hmm. and as soon as you make that jump you know as soon as soon as you draw that conclusion well then essentially you've become an, a young earth creationist because you've got to reevaluate all of the conventional geological dates yeah um and that, for me, is the big issue. It's not so much a, a, a kind of a side debate about, you know, what is the meaning of the word day in Genesis chapter 1. It's really crucial. It's about what is the meaning of Christ's death and his resurrection. What oh. is the significance of that link between sin and death? And what does that mean for how we understand what we see in the physical world? So, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's perhaps a long answer, but that, <laughs> that's how I kind of think about this question. Todd, I don't know if you've got anything you want to add. No, I wanted to go to the next, the other question, the minority sure. view. How do you, how do you do sure. that? Um, poorly. I do it poorly. Um, <laughs> it's not, it's not fun. It's not easy. Um, but it's immensely rewarding. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, creationism is true. It's totally worth it. Absolutely. Yeah. So. So some of the advice that I give to people, you know, if you're, if, you know, if you're going off to get an education, if you're working in, a, in, in an environment, number, number one thing is you don't ever deny Christ, right? Right. You don't deny your faith. Mm -hmm. But the second thing I tell them is, well, you also don't explain the full sweep of your theology to random folks, right? Um, I yeah. I don't introduce myself by explaining my position on predestination and the mode of baptism and all the other stuff that goes with that. <laughs> what I think about <laughs> eschatology, well, well. that's really not, you know, that might come up in a conversation, but it's not really mm -hmm. immediately pertinent. So 
So, yeah, who you divulge and who do you tell about what you actually think about origins, that's, uh, that's, you know, that's up to, uh, that's up to wisdom and, and wisely choosing what to do and when. Sure. Um, I know a lot of, a lot of creationists in the past have been, <clears throat> let's say, uh, they have made themselves martyrs by trying to be open and aggressive uh, and argumentative with mm. their professors and end up getting asked to leave or dismissed from programs or whatever. But at the same time, we're, we're also entering a, a, an era where it's really become just extremely polarized and kind of a litmus test, right? Mm. So it's not just that you know, people are getting let go because they are annoying, but people are getting <laughs> let go because uh, because they have a difference of opinion on on issues, and so it, and that and that situation takes wisdom, right? Uh, it takes wisdom to know how to how to approach things, what to say, when to say it, and so forth. It's not it's not. Um, it's not as simple as just taking a stand for Jesus. That that's a totally different, totally different sort of thing. So now, as for when you are done, or when you are working like I am in, a, in an environment where you're allowed to be a creationist, um, that yeah, I mean, you can expect that it's going to be hard going to get funding. There is no job called creation scientist you're gonna have to figure out how am i going to support me and my family <laughs> um as a creation scientist you're just gonna have to sort of sort that out and some people have you know i know some creationist researchers who you know they have their own you know they have their investments they have they have their farms. They have businesses that they run. Uh, and some of them are college professors, sort of taking the quasi-traditional route, being a college professor in a Christian setting. Um, and in that case, you're going to be spending a lot of time um, teaching, right? So you're not going to be doing research full-time. Uh, so that's that's the thing to think about. There is there, you know, you're going to lose access to resources uh, if you want to be out and about. Um, but having said all that, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the things I get to do, um, pretty crazy. And then to see the stuff that I see, the, the research results that I get to to get, be privy to, right firsthand um is is quite astonishing and exciting to me and uh not only can i not go back to conventional academia because of my positions open public positions but i wouldn't want to given what i've been through and what i've been what i've been able to do and what i've been able to accomplish uh, this is an incredible rewarding mm -hmm god honoring career mm -hmm. um, but it does take a lot of wisdom to figure out how to how to navigate how to how to how to how to be a good creationist um it's not a it's not a simple thing yeah no yeah i'd, I'd echo everything that that todd has said there's there's a great deal of wisdom there um we are not in a position of scientific or cultural dominance <laughs> we're not likely ever to be certainly mm. not in our lifetimes yeah. um we're we're a, we're a small minority as young earth creationists even among christians in academia um uh and i think we just have to get on with you know being the best scholars we can be um aim for the highest standards of scholarship and integrity um seek to live peaceably with all men as mm. the bible instructs us as far as it depends on us uh, we should seek to do that um and just remember we're, we're not doing it for our own um aggrandizement or uh even primarily for apologetic uh, reasons we're doing it for the glory of god uh you know we believe this is what the bible says and 
uh, and it's exciting, as as Todd says. Uh, I, I I don't regret it either. <laughs> um, it's it's phenomenally exciting. Um, it's it's a fantastic journey to be on. Um, you do need help. You do need support. You need to be part of community. That's really really important, and that's why groups like Core Academy of Science and Biblical Creation Trust are there, you know, to help students and other scholars and help them navigate all of that. But ultimately, you know, if uh, if this means being in a minority, if it means that people think you're crazy, or even if it means that fellow Christians misunderstand you, well, at the end of the day, so be it. I, th I think this is what the Bible says, and I, I think um, we're doing what God has called us to do, and yeah. It's it's great fun. <laughs> it is, yeah. It's challenging, but it's also a lot of fun. <laughs> well, gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for being on with us. Now, do you have a website that people can go to to access your resources? Yeah. Core Academy is at coresci.org, C-O-R-E-S-C-I dot O-R-G. Um, if you go to coresci.org slash connect, there'll be, a, there'll be links there to... Our social media, you'll find links there to important things that we've uh, produced that we think you should be aware of. You'll find links there also to our podcast, Let's Talk Creation. Biblical Creation Trust uh, is biblicalcreationtrust.org. Uh, that's our website, and there's lots of information on there about uh, everything that we uh, do and uh, links to other other things. We're on Facebook. We're, we're quite active on Facebook. Uh, so people can find us there. And, uh, you, yeah, as Todd says, you can check out our podcast, Let's Talk Creation. We're on YouTube. Uh, we find that most people seem to uh, watch us on YouTube. And, uh, yeah, just search for Let's Talk Creation. But we're also available on lots of other podcast streaming platforms. And all of the information is there at coursei.org forward slash podcast. Paul, can I say I love your accent? I think your accent just made <laughs> this podcast IQ go up 10 points at least. <laughs> <laughs> people, people always say that about the English accent. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say. <laughs> Americans say that about the yeah. English accent. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Paul Gardner, Todd Wood, thank, well, you thank you for being with us on the Bellator Christie podcast. We'll flip it over to Curtis to to land this plane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What an amazing, amazing uh, interview. We enjoyed every second of it. I This has kind of been uh, one of them bucket list uh, podcast interviews I've wanted to do. Um, you guys are just stellar in everything that you talk about and you do. You, 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 uh, you're honest when you need to be honest with, with not knowing if you don't have an answer. And you're honest with your answers even if they are hard. And that's what I really appreciate about you guys and everything that you guys say and do um, has been fantastic. Um, it, this has been a wonderful time for us. So I hope our, our hope our listeners enjoyed and uh, we got a chance to be able to help people understand that there's more to this discussion than just um, drawing a hard line. I'm this um I see the Bible this way or I see the Bible that way. There's actually there's actually nuance and actually good information defending uh, a young earth view. We certainly appreciate it. So we here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending time together with us. We value that time. Our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and become a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, Soldier on, friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast with Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo. This podcast is an exclusive production of Bellator Christie Ministries and is protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect the opinions of Bellator Christie Ministries and its affiliates. We thank you for listening and hope you'll consider leaving a positive review. To see more from Bellator Christie Ministries, go to bellatorchristie.com.
The Bellator Christie Podcast is coming soon. The sixth season of the Bellator Christie Podcast begins Thursday, September 22nd. This season will feature three theology series. The first will delve into pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? The second series will be on soteriology, looking into the various perspectives on salvation. And this section will handle issues concerning Calvinism, Arminianism, Thomism, and Molinism. The final series will be a second entry into the Theology Proper series as we delve into the knowledge and revelation of God. How do we know that God exists? Has God revealed himself to humanity? If so, in what way? Does God still speak to people? These issues will be covered in a lot more. Additionally, Season 6 marks the first time in podcast history that we will offer a live video interaction with individuals on YouTube and social media. We have a lot of exciting things going on with Season 6. We hope that you'll join us for what should be an amazing ride. Season 6 begins September 22nd at 8 o'clock p.m. And you can find the Bellator Christie Podcast on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and anywhere that podcasts are found. The Bellator Christie Podcast begins September 22nd. We hope to see you there.